You are listening to the Mile Straight Podcast. For more information on Mile Straight or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.milestraightbc.org. The speaker for today is our senior pastor, Tom Goss. And let me do say, man, it's great to see your face. Uh, It has been, for me, two months because two weeks prior to you going out, I got COVID and I was down for the count for a while. And so uh, I haven't been here in at least two months as far as seeing your faces sitting out there. And so it is true. I've been talking up here to a mostly empty building, and that is tough. I am so thankful to see you here this morning. And for those of you who uh, aren't comfortable coming back just yet, there's some health issues or whatever going on, or you just couldn't get here, we're glad you joined us through the means in which you're watching. Thanks so much for being part of this service with us. Today we are going to uh, join together in a study of an incredible story Now, this is a story that a lot of the time doesn't get a lot of notoriety. Now, I say that uh, understanding that that's not very appropriate when we're talking about passages in the Bible because the Word of God is all inspired by God. It's all equally important to us. There are some passages that apply to us more in some areas of life and at some times in life than do other passages. And yet... This particular story that we're going to examine today in John chapter 8 is one that, for whatever reason, maybe it's because it doesn't have the miracles that Jesus did in other places. It doesn't have the confrontations he had with the Pharisees or other religious leaders. It doesn't show him feeding thousands of people with just a little bit of food. For whatever reason, this particular story doesn't get the attention that some of the others do with some people. But I want to show you this morning the incredibleness of this story. I want to show you how truly remarkable this passage is. I want to show you the compassion and love of Jesus Christ that is completely on display through this story. It is simply amazing to me. And it's amazing how God takes something that Uh, someone meant for evil and he turns it into something that is remarkably beautiful It, it reminds me of the story of Joseph a whole lot how Joseph told his brothers you sold me into slavery I ended up being lied on thrown into prison was there for years and now I've been raised to this place through all of that time what you did you meant it for evil but God meant it for good God had a plan through it He intended to work it out for his glory and my good. And we see this happening in this passage of Scripture. If you have your Bible open, or if you've got your note sheet, or you're following along on the screens, or you have your device open, whatever the case may be. I know there's a million different ways to do it these days. Look, if you will, John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. The passage says, Early in the morning he, of course we're talking about Jesus, came again to the temple. And the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Listen to this. Jesus was left alone standing. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said to him, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What an amazing story about the compassion and love of Almighty God. Now, as we move through this passage, there's a lot of different ways we could go. Quite honestly, we look at the title of this story, Trouble is in the Midst. There's a troublemaker there. And we could look at the woman who is the center of attention, who's been brought to this place, who's been thrown on the scene, who's had her sin exposed to the crowd that are there listening to Jesus teach. We could talk about her rebellion, her wickedness. We could talk about the sin that has no, no doubt divided homes, has, has devastated and made children insecure. And yet in this story, as true as all that is, this story, she is not the troublemaker. There is a hint attached to the title that says it, it's not who it appears to be. We could spend our time talking about her. We could talk about the fear and the, and the anxiety that she must have felt when she was thrust on the scene. When they grabbed her in the act and they rushed her down, she would have had rolling through her mind that this means they're going to stone me to death. And when they placed her in front of Jesus, the Savior, maybe she had heard about him, maybe she hadn't. I can't help but believe that she knew who he was because she called him Lord. The embarrassment. The fear came when they said, what do you want us to do with her? They knew the law. They knew what was supposed to happen. But they wanted to ask Jesus, what do you want us to do with her? She must have felt such fear. Jesus said, let the person who has no sin go ahead and throw the first rock. I can imagine that she probably cringed a little. Here it comes. When she opened her eyes, she saw that her, her accusers were gone. Oh. Jesus said, well, where are they? Is there no one here to condemn you? She said, no, Lord. Can you imagine the relief? Can you imagine the burden gone? Can you imagine the anxiety taken away? Can you imagine the fear has been swept away by those kind words of Jesus? I, I don't condemn you either. 
Now that would be a great study. We could spend our time talking about Jesus. Certainly as we make our way through this passage, we, we will see that he is obviously the main person in the story. Uh, and there's no way to exclude him from our study. But, but what I want to do for just a few minutes, and I'm talking 15, 20 minutes, I want to bring our heart and our attention to see the troublemakers. Interestingly enough, the troublemakers are the religious leaders of the day. They're the religious crowd. Now, please understand there's a big difference in being religious and being Christian. You can be religious over a lot of different things. You can be religious over the moon. But you can only be Christian over Jesus Christ. And so the religious leaders are the troublemakers. They're working behind the scenes. They're stirring the pot. They're trying to, to cause trouble for Jesus. And it is this group of people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, which I want to focus our attention for a little bit. I want to show you three characteristics about them. And I want to bring us then to our fourth point that will take place maybe in about 12 to 15 minutes. I want to bring you to a place to where we see a twist in the story. Something that the troublemakers weren't expecting to happen took place. So if you've got a note sheet, write this down. If you've got a way to take notes at home, please do. Because number one, we see a characteristic of troublemakers, and it's the same then as it is now, that instead of dealing with the problem, they used it as a weapon. Instead of dealing with the problem that existed, they used this problem as a weapon. You see, I'm convinced that the problem didn't really bother them as much as they let on. I'm convinced of that because they knew exactly what the law required. They knew that they were supposed to stone someone who did something like this. They knew that if they saw someone or caught someone in the act of adultery, that there was no questions to be asked under the law. They were to bring that person out or both those people out, as this case would have been, and stone them to death. It was judgment, it was punishment, and it was a warning to everyone else who was watching. The Pharisees and the scribes also knew the compassion of Jesus. And so they thought, we can take this situation and we can tie it into fixing our problem. What was their problem? Their problem was Jesus. Their problem was jealousy. In verse 2, there's one phrase that kind of sums it up. All the people came to him. These people who were going to them, who were listening to their teachings, who were getting their instructions from them, now all of a sudden is going to Jesus. And they don't like that. They can't stand that. And as a result, they're thinking to themselves, what do we have to do to eliminate this problem? And they come up with a plan. I believe they detail it out very carefully. They've left nothing for, for chance. They, they know exactly what's going to take place. And, and as a result, they are ready to bring destruction to Jesus. And so they thought, 
If we take this situation before him as compassionate and loving as he is, he's just simply going to say, I don't want, I don't want to, to follow the law in this case. What they didn't know was what Jesus had said. I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. So he wasn't going to break the law. They thought he would. They thought that his compassion and his love would cause him to say, listen, you can't stone her. You can't stone her. And so they thought they had won the battle. The second thing we see about the troublemakers is that they wanted the harshest penalties to be dispensed. They wanted the harshest penalties to be dispensed. The harsher the better. The, the more pain that they could inflict, the more sympathy they thought they could gain from Jesus for this person that would cause him to say, listen, let's forego the law in this situation. I think we see the coldness of their hearts. I think we see, yeah, they were religious. Yeah, they had their rules and they stuck to them. But I think we see that deep inside there was a coldness. Now, why? Why would we see that? They're just going to follow the law, right? No, number one, they didn't just do what they were supposed to do. Number two, they only brought the woman out. Let me tell you something. Adultery requires two people. And the law of Moses says that both parties are to be brought out in stone. Not just one. I believe we see that this is a calculated process by which they had laid a plan. And this man was probably involved in the plan. So that when he would let them know it was going to take place, they would rush in, catch them in the act. He would go free and they would institute their, their devices. They didn't care about this woman. There was no concern. There was no compassion. It wasn't that they said, listen, we hate it. We really do. You've done this. You've sinned. There's no doubt about it. And, and we've got to stone you. You know, everybody's got to know that you just can't do this. You can't get away with it. Things were much harsher back then than they are today. The truth is, they were only trying to trap Jesus. Whatever it takes is perfectly fine. If you die in the process, ma'am, we don't care. We don't care. There's a third thing we see about them, and that is that they were relentless in their attack. Number three, they were relentless in their attack. They were relentless to the point that they asked Jesus the question, what do you say we do with her? And you remember what Jesus did. He was sitting in the chair teaching the people when they interrupted the process. And now when they ask him the question, Jesus just bends over and starts writing on the ground with his finger. I believe that captivated them. Not to the point that they would stop badgering him. It was as if they were saying, if you think you ignoring us is going to cause us to go away, you got another thing coming. 
That's not going to work. I assure you, we're going to continue to disrupt and to, to create havoc here in this teaching session until you finally answer the question. You might as well just go ahead and answer it. But I believe they were captivated by what Jesus was doing on the ground as they continued to badger. Finally, Jesus stood up and he said, okay. Then let's let the one who has no sin be the one who throws the first rock. You know, as we look back at these three characteristics of troublemakers, they won't deal with the problem. They're just going to use it as a weapon. They want the harshest penalties to be dispensed. They, they're relentless in the attack. We see that there's not much difference in troublemakers back then and troublemakers today. It still happens. And let me tell you the sad part about this. It's not only happening in the world around us. It's happening in churches as well. Now I can tell you that's a very dangerous proposition. To... To be one who divides the body of Christ, who sows those bitter roots of contempt between Christians, between brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a very dangerous thing to do. If you've been involved in that, whether you're the instigator or you're just one that was kind of caught up in the process, this person hates this person and they're trying to destroy them or they just want to make sure they've got everybody on their side and you've got, a, got kind of wrapped up in all of that. And let me tell you something. Today would be a really good day to confess that to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This then is where we get a better picture of the twist that takes place in this story. Number four, if you're taking notes, write this down. They faced off with the unexpected. They faced off with the unexpected. Now, I, I believe that they had so meticulously detailed this plan that they thought they knew everything Jesus would do in the process. Throughout the entire time, they knew exactly how Jesus was going to respond to this situation. They had already detailed it out. It was not up for chance in their, in their minds. They knew what he was going to do. And yet, what they did not take into consideration was that this was no ordinary man. This was the Messiah. This was God. And so they didn't necessarily expect that, as I believe, when he was down on his seat and riding in the dirt the first time, that he was probably talking to God. Probably didn't really expect that. You know, Jesus said, I did not come to do my will, but I came to do the will of the one who sent me, the Father. And I believe in that time, Jesus was saying, Father, how do you want me to handle this? You know, what's your plan? for the, You see what they're trying to do. They're trying to trap me. It's obvious. If they can get me to say something against the law, then they'll form a, a, a riot among the people. They'll get them stirred up to where this woman won't only be stoned. I'll be stoned right there with her. 
So how do you want me to handle this? Isn't that a really good thing for us? Jesus would not be pressured into an immediate response. He was thinking through it. He was talking with the Father. I think it's a great example. It's a great picture for us in that same situation. Troublemakers will try to force an issue. We don't have to answer immediately. Usually when we respond quickly, at least I should speak for myself. When I respond quickly, I usually say something I shouldn't have said. I usually get involved in their own tactics. I, I stoop to a level that I don't want to stoop. And what a great example. Jesus just waited. When he stood up, he said what they were not expecting. Okay, person here who doesn't have sin, why don't you be the one to throw the rock first? Now, why would have that been significant to them? Maybe that alone pricked their hearts. Maybe that alone caused them to stop and think, I'm not a perfect person. Yeah, she was caught in sin. There's no denying that. But I could have easily been caught in sin, my own sin. Maybe it was the same. Maybe it was something different. I could have easily been there myself, and maybe that's what caused There have been others who have suggested that possibly that when Jesus stooped down the first time that, that he was writing different sins in the dirt. Adultery, fornication, thievery, blasphemy, not loving God with all your heart, not loving your neighbor as yourself. And maybe the second time, this is kind of my take on that, maybe the second time when he stooped down to ride in the dirt, maybe after saying the first person who has no sin can throw the rock, maybe he started putting names beside the sin, Bartholomew, and maybe he just glanced up at him. And all of a sudden... They come to an understanding, this guy's got some insight into my life that I don't necessarily want revealed. And they turned and left. Regardless of what caused them to leave, Jesus did the unexpected. And here this woman that they had drugged before him to be stoned to death was now experiencing a level of kindness and love and mercy she never thought possible. When they drug her out of the house, she thought her chances of survival were zero. I mean, these men were cruel. They were hateful. She had no chance of surviving this. And then she heard Jesus say, you know what? I don't condemn you either. I thought about that kind of love. And I thought, that is such an incredible picture of my salvation. The enemy was there accusing her and they wanted her stoned to death, the harshest punishment possible. 
Jesus made a way. And I just thought there was a day when the enemy was accusing me. He had every right to accuse me because everything he was saying about me was true. Jesus said, wait a minute. I made a way. I died for that sin. I paid the price for his sin. And he is called on my name. He believes that I died for him, that God raised me back to life. And I have forgiven him. His sin will never again be remembered. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. They don't come together. It's gone. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for me. There's one final thing that I want you to see about this passage. And I think it also is an incredible picture, an incredible illustration for how we should live our lives. Here we have Jesus, who, by the way, if you've forgotten, if you didn't know, he is fully God. Fully God. And Jesus, in this situation, has this woman brought before him who is called in the act. Her sin is real. It's not that she stands before him and says, but Jesus, it's not true. They just grabbed me off the street and drugged me here. I didn't know what they were going to say till we got here. This is not true. That's not the case. This was real. And Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and carry that sin with him. Now, if ever there is someone, anyone, who has the right to condemn such a person, it's Jesus. If ever there was a person who could have said, you're disgusting me, get out of my sight, stoner, it's Jesus. Because he was getting ready to pay the ultimate price for that sin. And yet Jesus, oh, such mercy, such love, neither do I condemn you. It made me think about different situations in my life when instead of knowing what I was talking about or thinking about, I jumped on board with someone to condemn someone else. Where Jesus had the right, I have no rights. Where Jesus is God, I'm man. Where Jesus was perfect in everything he did, I'm completely fallible. I have absolutely no right to condemn anyone. Yes, I can look at fruit and say, no, you're not acting like a Christian. And therefore, you're not going to be given responsibilities that a mature Christian would have. But I have no right 
to judge someone, to condemn someone. How would it transform our lives? How would it transform our families? How would it transform our church and our community if we were a group of people who acted like Jesus? Someone falls into sin. The typical Christian response, I would never do that. How would it change if instead of that we did what James talks about? And those who are spiritual, those who have the Spirit of God living in them, would instead of condemning and looking down their noses, would reach out in love to restore that one back to the place of rightness with God. How would it change us? How would it change our community if they saw us extending love instead of bitterness? why would we do that? Well, because that's what Jesus did and we're supposed to be Christians, little Christs. And because James goes on in his epistle and his, in his book to say, you better also consider yourself when you're reaching out to them because you can easily be in their same shoes. God tells us time and time again throughout the Bible that he despises pride. And he says, let him who thinks he stands, he's so haughty, he's so full of himself, let him who thinks he stands take heed because a fall is on the way. You can expect it, it's coming. And so instead of responding with condemnation, instead of looking down our noses, instead of acting with hatred in our hearts, we instead humble ourselves and say, you know what, I could be there too. Let me, let me help you up. What would it do to our church family if we did that? What would it do to our community if they saw us doing that? it would probably revolutionize what they thought about Christians. Can you see how God would be glorified if we acted more like Jesus?